Hello, welcome to this podcast called Finding Inspiration. It's a 20 or so minute weekly podcast where we interview someone with an amazing story. After the show, I know you're going to feel energized, invigorated, and inspired. I'm Jennifer Weissman. Welcome to Finding Inspiration. Today's episode number 26 is the second in this series called We Remember. I had the opportunity to interview Tova Friedman. Tova is the author of the best-selling book called The Daughter of Auschwitz. She was one of the youngest survivors of Auschwitz. And we're releasing this episode on the 84th anniversary of Kristallnacht, which is also known as the Night of the Broken Glass, really when violence started by the Nazis against the Jews in Europe. This is an amazing story of survival by this woman, and her theme is We Remember. The foreword of her book was written by Sir Ben Kingsley. Please buy her book, and please listen to the entire 30 minutes with Miss Tova Friedman. I was walking through the airport a couple of weeks ago, and I saw your book, Daughter of Auschwitz. And I thought, well, this looks like a book I need to pick up and read. I had no idea that you were the youngest survivor. One of the youngest. One. One of the, there are a few, a handful of us. A handful of you, of the youngest survivors of Auschwitz, of a concentration camp. You're 84 years old. And in addition to writing this, amazing, unbelievably moving and and disturbing book. You are now also a TikTok sensation, and I want to get into (laughs) Yeah, that's thanks to my son. It's it's, uh, Aaron Goodman. He did it for his class to educate his class a little bit, and then he just just took off. So he's been doing it since. 50 million downloads, I read. Some of them, yeah. (laughs) It's, a, it's amazing. Your it's your grandson, right? Aaron, is right, that right? Aaron. He's 17 years old. Amazing, amazing. Your message to the world is what? Well, you know, it's very hard to talk to a world that is falling apart right now. Right now, there's so many terrible issues in America, especially. Uh, is, is that to be very wary? Be careful when one spouts hatred and anger towards somebody or something, because uh, if it's not checked, it can really end up in in gas chambers. People, ideas, everything. That hatred is extremely dangerous and very contagious. One person says something, before you know it, a hundred people are, uh, uh, are spouting the same thing, and there is a movement of hatred somewhere. Do you think the world has learned the lessons? I don't know. I don't know how much it's learned. I don't, I don't know. I don't think so. I think right now there's so much anti-Semitism in America. It is absolutely scary. One or two people say something in public and they're very um, effective, they speak well, They and other people join them without thinking. 
what what the consequences are. Yeah, like Kanye West very recently had right. some very big anti-Semitic rant, um, and people chalked it up to, well, he's bipolar, so it doesn't matter. But well, that's what they said about Hitler. He's a mad, crazy person, but he won't be in, in, in. My father said that in Poland. He thought he's not going to be a, a chancellor long. He's crazy. People are going to get rid of him. It's not true. Take me back, daughter of Auschwitz, best-selling author Tova Friedman. You were five years old. My first memory is two or three years old, and there was in a ghetto in Tobolsk, Mazowiecki where we all lived in very crowded places and the shooting and the, I knew everything kids knew. And also because my mother made sure that I knew because she thought that by knowing I'll, I'll be safe. I'll be safer. Knowledge is power for you. Right. I I will know the danger and I will learn self-protection. So what was life like for you in the ghetto? First of all, we did live as a family. So this was still, we were still together, mother, father. I saw my grandmother, um, uncle, you know, people came and went. But slowly they were, my uncle was killed. One of the earliest selections because he was um, a very educated lawyer. He ironically came from Germany. He was a German Jew and they told him to just leave the country as soon as possible. He did. And he came, he thought Poland would be safe. And and um, he came because I think he had some relatives there. Then he met my aunt who was about 17, 18, my father's sister. He They married and he was killed shortly afterwards. And so you're, you're living as a community in this ghetto. How many people were in the ghetto at this point? Gee, I don't know. I know thousands, 15, 15, 13,000. All the Jews were put into the ghetto, and then Jews from other towns were put there also. And were you wearing an armband at this point? Yes, yes. We had a a white, I think it was blue or something like that. I, I don't remember exactly, but I think that's what it was. Yeah, everybody did. And that was to distinguish you as as a Jew? Yeah, well, the first thing they stamped our like a like a ID card called Jude, Jew, and then the the armband came. Then the armband came. So, at what point did you move from the ghetto onto a cattle car or however you got there? That's, to- that's much later. That's a first of all, they just they killed most people in the ghetto it's by starvation, by shooting. Uh, many people were sent to to Treblinka. That was that place was you know they had each ghetto going to a different place. So this was a Treblinka destination, <clears throat> and then just a few people were left, thirty five, thirty six, something like that. I, the number is always between fifty. I'm not sure the exact. It, it varies because different witnesses remember different numbers, but there weren't more than a hundred. My father said it was 36, and we were the cleanup squad. What was that? We cleaned up. You know, whenever the Germans closed the camp, they made it look like nothing happened there because they wanted to leave no witnesses, and they keep denying. They keep denying throughout the whole war that they weren't killing anybody. 
that they were just using people as slaves for, for slave labor, but not death. So they cleaned up, we cleaned up, we buried the dead. Um, so your, your job, your, your job or your parents' job was to wash the sheets and clean the floor and get rid of all the blood? Is that everything. Cleaned up, make the place so that if the Red Cross were ever to come, they would say, show us. There was no sign that anybody was killed here or tortured or anything. So in, in every town, they had Jews as cleanup squads. Also in Auschwitz, the Sonderkommando were the people who would take the bodies out of the crematorium, you know, out of after they were they were and and, and, and they, they they would clean the ashes. Wow! So they had the Jews doing cleanup everywhere. So is that they, is that so they didn't get their hands dirty? Exactly right. I mean, we really, I yeah sure a guy who would give orders to kill a thousand people will say, I didn't do anything. I never did the shooting. And he didn't, he didn't, he had his henchmen do it. He didn't clean up. He didn't take the touch of the dead bodies. We took care of the dead bodies. So he didn't. It's very interesting, you know, that they were thinking ahead. Yes, absolutely. You know, I think it's like any, crime that you can read about that a killer takes uh wears gloves and make sure he does he doesn't leave fingerprints so he can't be caught i think they had the same kind of a philosophy uh leave no witnesses this was the order from berlin from hitler leave no witnesses you're in the camp and you had a relatively sort of, I don't want to say normal, but you had friends in the camp. No, there were no friends. I didn't, I didn't go out. I didn't go out of the house. You didn't, in the ghetto, you did not leave the house. No, we were, I was frightened to death. There okay. were people outside being shot all the time. Maybe somebody came over. I do remember sometimes not playing, but being with another child who came to visit. But I, I did not have any normal there was not a normal life except our parents are with us so, so you're you're together with your mother and your father father right when the ghetto closed what yeah. happened next they took us to the next ghetto it was called the labor camp my parents worked a whole day from morning to night at uh, in, in ammunition factories and I, my kids were just roaming the streets on their own there weren't that many there weren't many kids left because they, they've been killed or sent to Treblinka. They were gone already. You know, they were they were already disposed of and elderly. So only the people who had work papers and were strong, who could work in a factory, were left. And some of the, their children came with them. So were you just a lucky person at that point that you survived? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the camp had um, had rules, and my mother taught me the rules, you know, so that I I I uh, don't get killed while she is not with me. That's why she taught me so much, because she knows she can't be with me to protect me. How old were you at this point? Five and a half. Okay, after you moved with your parents together to the labor camp, what came after that? Auschwitz. Because they were liquidating 
They were, again, moving people, cleaning up, cleaning up the only witnesses. All of us from that camp went to Auschwitz. And your father was, he was separated from you and your mother. Right. right? Se- that's where the separation started. We went with the women. He went with the men in the same train. And when we arrived, we was tattooed. Because, by the way, tattooing only took place in, in, in Auschwitz. No place else. No other camp tattooed. As far as I know, no other camp. So you're five and a half years old, and they tattooed your arm? Not yet, yeah. Later, a little bit later on. Not when I arrived. My father was tattooed when he arrived to Auschwitz because he was sent to Dachau. I and my mother were tattooed. I was tattooed on my own when I went to the children's um children's place and she was tattooed with the women in her barrack did they shave you, your head and and give yeah. you a uniform and and so you're a young well, girl not a uniform they, i didn't have a uniform they gave me some kind of clothing i did not wear the striped things they didn't have all of them for children they usually were big for, for like teenagers they didn't have for five-year-olds you know, so I just got, they took my clothes away and they gave me some kind of a schmatter. And they shaved my head. That's as soon, almost as soon as I arrived. Took my braids. I had braids. Oh, that must have been traumatic. Yeah, <laughs> to say the least. And to see my mother without a hair, that that was traumatic. I couldn't find her, you know. All these women were without hair and I was looking for my mother and I couldn't. Hair is such a personal thing. Yeah, identifies you. Right. What was a typical day for you when you were in this camp? What What did you do all day? In Auschwitz. In Auschwitz. There was, when I was with the children, right, first of all, there was a lot of counting. After I got my number, there was a lot of, of counting. Your, wait, your number that was tattooed on your arm? What was your number? Twenty-seven, twenty-seven thousand six hundred and thirty-three. I had to memorize that. Uh, I didn't only, you know, I couldn't read or write. I had never gone to school. I don't know. I didn't know what a number was, but I memorized the the words of it. You know, the 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 the, the words of the numbers, and uh, very hard to say. Typical, but you're starving. There's nothing really you could do. Kids just, in the morning, we had something to eat. Sometimes we went for a walk uh, outside. They would take us for a little walk. And that's when I remembered, um, I, I was always curious. I saw a little hut or something, and the door was ajar. So I went in, and I saw bodies piled from the very top, from the floor to the very top, cut up. It must have been from experiments because Mengele's place wasn't far who experimented. Uh, I, I can't imagine being... No, I just said to myself, oh, that's where they keep them. They were wow. like, fro- they were frozen. They were like right on top of the other. Just, I, could, I still remember it, you know. And I just went back online and then there were bodies sort of ground or we were walking because, because, um, they did, they did clean up the bodies, but they didn't manage yet, you know. And that's the joke when he said, leave no witnesses. When Auschwitz was liberated, there were thousands of witnesses everywhere, dead and alive. 
right? It was, it's, it's hard. It, it was like, like you live in a nightmare and something is real, something isn't real, something happens. Some, it, it's, it's really it, it, very hard to describe it. It's very hard to describe it, how you live with, 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 with corpses everywhere, everywhere. And at this point, you didn't see your father. Is that right? But you oh, did. No, see- I didn't. My didn't see my father till much later. I didn't even see my mother at this point. I okay. didn't know she was. You didn't know she was dead or alive. I didn't know, but one time I knew because I, I was walking. But we they took us to the crematorium, like as if it's our turn. I heard a voice calling me, asking me where we going. So I knew she was alive. I read in the book that you said at one point they took you to the crematorium, to the ante room, waiting to prepare to move you inside to gas you. What happened? We don't know. The person who co-wrote the book, Malcolm, is a reporter and he did a lot of research. And he said he doesn't know. There are all kinds of reasons. First, it could be something went wrong. You know, it was a technical issue, maybe. Then maybe it, but they had just, they had just stopped um, guessing. They may have been that week when they got an order from Berlin, stop the gas because the allies were coming. You went to the gas chamber, something went wrong and you left again. I was reading the book. I couldn't, first of all, I could not put the book down, The Daughter of Auschwitz. It's a must read in every high school Truly, I know that you say your mother was your protector. And one very chilling story that you told was when your mom grabbed you and had you hide hugging a corpse. Tell me about that. Well, you know, what what happened was they were it was at the end of the war. The Allies were on the way. So the the Germans just went berserk. I mean, the orders and, and uh, they they were ordered to take every person there and move them to Germany, move them away from from the allies. I told you, leave no witnesses. Right. So they were rounding up people and they were shooting people. If you didn't go fast, they had a line in the center of this gigantic camp, a line of people lined up. And if you didn't get into the line, they saw you outside of the line. They were, you were shot. So she uh, came into my barrack, which was chaotic by then. And she just said to me, I'm not going on this trip, on this walk. I'm going to die. She looked terrible. And she said, but if you survive, I don't want you to survive by yourself in this world. This is not a world for children. And she said, let's see if we could hide here. And maybe we could, we could survive here or we'll die here together. And she said, will you die with me? I said, yes. And she took me out of the barrack. This chaotic shooting outside everywhere. I don't know how we even made it. I didn't know there was an infirmary, but she knew. And she, we all, she chose a corpse for me. I got in and she covered me up. And I remember how she manipulated my body in such a way where I wouldn't be visible from the out if you put a cover on it. But the corpse was visible. She had uncovered the corpse up to here, you know, and my, the hands of the corpse were outside. So that when the Germans came to check, they went to the hospital. They checked every body. And, and if the body moved and they couldn't get out of bed, they'd shoot it. They came in, but I didn't breathe, you know. I breathed into the floor. 
so that there shouldn't be any kind of movement of the... But I understood what to do exactly. You survived the war. You survived Auschwitz. You and your mother left. You were probably skin and bones. I'm, I'm sure she was as well. What did everybody do when they when they left the camp? Where did they go? Well, we got a little, like an ID card from the Red Cross so we could travel for free because we had no money. And we looked ter- We looked like, 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 like vague, the kind of people you wouldn't want with you, in, near you, or anything. So we got home. What my mother kept saying, "Oh, you'll have all this family. This family, you'll, you'll be so lucky." She said, "You don't know what kind of family you come from." So we went there, and the first welcoming was a woman that my mother knew. And the first thing the person said was, "What are you doing here, back?" We thought Hitler killed you all. These were her words. So your neighbors, your your Polish neighbors in your little village were not happy to see you. It was you. not a little village. It was a very big city. I, I didn't come from a village. Tomasz Mazowiecki had at that time 30,000, 40,000 people and 15,000 Jews. Very vibrant uh, city uh, with a lot of theater. I don't know about movies, probably movies too, but I know there was Yiddish theater six, seven Yiddish schools, uh, Zionist movements, um, uh, sports arenas, a high school. It was not a small city. A vibrant city, a very vibrant city with a lot a of very, Jews. Yeah, because, you know, because they had they had the, uh, what is it, uh, garment industry. A lot of, there were 100 tailors there in the city. And in fact, the tailors even did sewing for the Germans, for uniforms. It was a very vibrant city. Very vibrant city. So you go back and your neighbors are not happy to see you. Right. And and we have no place to go because later on, the Jewish community got organized and the Red Cross came and we had, uh, they, they helped us with food and with, but, but in the beginning there was nobody there. When we came, there was no one there, maybe a few families. So we had to no place to go. Our place was ruined. My mother took me to a place that all I saw were rocks. So uh, we spent quite a bit time in a cellar that we were lucky that the person didn't throw us out. So you lived in a cellar in your in your city. While. You said something like it was an appointment everyone kept. If you survived, you went back to the last place well, that you know, lived. It, it was an unwritten statement. I think it's true now too. If you go to a park with it, I I I know I lost one of my grandchildren in a park, in a big park. It was a carnival, and I he disappeared. So I didn't move from the place. And he came back to the place where he saw me last. And that's how we found each other. You instinctively want to go back to the place you saw each other last. So people from the town, we had to see who's alive, who's coming back. And for my mother, nobody came back. There was a tragedy of her life that it's still part of my pain for her. I don't think I, I, don't think I ever got over her pain. She died at 45 that 
all the things that you promised me. Oh, you have you'll have aunts and uncles and cousins and they're rabbis and they're scholars and they're wonderful people. You will never be alone. All that stuff. Nobody came back. Not one cousin came back. 150 people were murdered. She was the only one left and she didn't want to leave. She didn't want to live. Okay, but one day there was a little bit of good news, right? Somebody yeah. came back. Well, two, no. First of all, my two aunts came. Three aunts came back from my father before my father came back. His three sisters. So right away we had money already because they were very good tailors, and we moved in together. We lived together. And then, and then, um, uh, one of them was killed by a by the anti-Semitic groups that roamed around. Unbelievable. So your father did come home, which is amazing. Right. You know, ironically enough, he came the day where the paper, the newspaper covered the killing and her picture was on the front page when he got off the train to Tomashov. And then she's lying with her head. Blood wow. everywhere. She was wow. shot in the head. So anyhow, he came back and we lived together there for a few years because my mother wouldn't go anywhere. She wanted to see who's coming back. She's, she was positive somebody's got to come back. Nine brothers and sisters, nobody came back. All right, I want to change gears for a minute and I want to ask you a, a serious question. 1.5 million Jewish children were murdered. Do you have any kind of survivor's guilt? Like, how do you manage your life? No. No. No, I never had survivor's guilt. Well, maybe it depends how you define it. I felt that I was saved for a reason. What was the reason? First of all, to be a witness. You know, he wanted to kill children. Number one is to be a witness. Number two is to... to, um, is to do something so I leave this place a little bit better than I found it. So I became a therapist. I lived in Israel. I taught at the Hebrew University. I sort of did things that I thought, well, maybe when I leave, when I die, it's going to be a little different. They say, well, she did this. I'm glad she was alive because she did such and such and such and such. Let me ask a question about God. Do you believe in God? Depends what day you ask me, off and on. Sometimes I do. Um, sometimes I I can't imagine there is a God who would watch this and be aware of it and let it happen. And my, my mother gave up God in a way because... Her family was all the most religious, you know, worshipped God all the time, scholars, rabbis. And she said if those great people were murdered, she wasn't interested in pursuing God. But I, you know, then I have the other, you know, God is free will. and That's another theory. I don't know. But recently, you know, my husband died two years ago. and. He wasn't ill. He died in five hours. And since that, for some reason, my life has changed a little bit. 
So as if God is saying, I took, you know, I was married 60 years. Um, I took away the person that you were closest to. I met him when I was 12. So I'll give you something else to do. And that is, I wrote the book a year after he died during COVID. I and Malcolm, who lives in London. I, I want to stop for a second. I want to tell the story of how you met Malcolm and, and the 75th liberation, um, the celebration of life where you met this reporter reporter yeah. who stopped you and then contacted you later and said, hey, what did he say to you? I'd like to uh, interview you. And he made a little movie. And then he called me a year later. You've become a best-selling author very, very quickly. This book, Daughter of Auschwitz, is front and center in every bookstore and airport store. Everywhere I go, I see this picture of you and your mother. That's what I believe in God. You know why? There's a lot of Holocaust books written, 15,000. That's a lot. And somehow this, this particular book caught people's imagination. And I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful to Malcolm, to people like you, to, to, to the world that they are sort of letting me talk about my mother. The world knows her now. And I'm just so grateful that after I'm gone, I'm 84, there'll be people who remember me and my family. You know, people like us worry who's going to remember us. So just like I remember others, I'm very dedicated to remember those who've been murdered. There'll be people remembering me because of the book. So that's what I think maybe maybe God had a hand in it. Tova, your story. Ah, it's amazing. It's amazing. If you had some message to tell your grandchildren now and the next generation, can you give me like one sentence of what what you want them to know about your experience in concentration camps? Just really briefly, I just want to close with a message from you for the young people of the world to remember. I'm trying to think because I... I'm going to say something I didn't say before, and maybe it's too Cornish. I don't, you know, I don't know. Uh, try to develop the love in your heart rather than hatred. We have both. We really have both. We really have both. I don't know in equal measure or not. We can hate as well as we can love. If you concentrate on the love, you would have accomplished something with your life. If you concentrate on your hate, you have not only destroyed life for yourself, but for generations to come. Tova Friedman, wow, best-selling author, Auschwitz survivor. The book is called The Daughter of Auschwitz with co-author Malcolm Brabant. Everyone must read this book. They must give it out as a gift. It's an unbelievable story. I'm so, so honored 
Thank you. It's a good Hanukkah present. It's an amazing Hanukkah present or Christmas present or whatever present, birthday present. Thank you again, Tova. You are amazing. Keep telling your story near and far. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you for having me. And you are part of the people that can spread love. Thank you, Tova. Thank you for joining us this week on Finding Inspiration. Hey, I would appreciate it if you would click on that subscribe button and share this podcast with a friend. See you next week. I'm Jennifer Weissman.